that's already you know uh, down uh, down by almost twenty six percent this year. Mm-hmm. So that's already uh, retreated uh, prices in the market. So the market is more uh, you know uh, concerned about whether the EPS growth in certain sectors will continue will be sustainable this year. So it's mm-hmm. more about the new numerator. Uh, you know how the, uh, the the sector will continue to carry on the the uh, the, uh, the the improvement of the EPS growth. Well, Yana, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for your thoughts this morning and have a good week. That's Yana Wu, who is the chairman of Zhengrong Bell. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, in the markets, Asian stocks are starting to slip a little bit now as the morning uh, wears on, and uh, U.S. stock index futures are falling as well. So the ASX 200 in Australia only up a third of a percent now. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has lost its gains. It is now down a third of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea up about 0.3 percent, and futures markets indicating a rise for the Hang Seng of about 100 points or so at the open. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil is sliding down to $68.62 a barrel. Gold is at $1,845 an ounce. Thank you for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chat's coming up very shortly with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods and a few showers, very hot during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be 33 degrees. The very hot temperature warning is in force. The outlook is for a few showers tomorrow. Isolated thunderstorms at first. Hot with sunny periods in the following few days. It's 30 degrees right now, 76% relative humidity. 8.32, Samantha Butler has the half-hour news. The government has imposed restrictions on Taiwan arrivals after the island recorded 206 new COVID-19 cases yesterday. Arrivals must quarantine for 21 days in a hotel. Fully vaccinated people can quarantine for 14 days, followed by a week of self-monitoring. Non-Hong Kong residents will be denied entry. Over the weekend, authorities in Taiwan raised the COVID alert level for Taipei and nearby New Taipei. RTHK's correspondent there, Cindy Su, said health experts blamed the unprecedented high daily case numbers on the low vaccination rate. It was very quick at closing borders, very quick at keeping you know other people out and quarantining any Taiwanese person coming back to Taiwan for 14 days. Very good at contact tracing. But these measures alone will not keep Taiwan safe because the rest of the world has not brought COVID under control. And a lot of Taiwanese people live abroad and were still coming back in the past few months. And of course, the pilots still have to fly because of cargo flights. So there's still that loophole. People are still coming back from other countries with the virus. So unless the population is vaccinated, we're not really protected. Palestinian officials in Gaza say Sunday was the deadliest day since the current fighting with Israel began nearly a week ago. More than 40 people were killed in the latest Israeli airstrikes. The Israeli army said Palestinian militants had fired more than 3,000 rockets towards Israel in the past week. The Defence Minister Benny Gantz said his country's use of force was justified. No other sovereign country would have acted differently to Israel against such a terrorist organization that targets its citizens without distinction. It's not just our right, it's also our moral obligation. 
Scientists have criticised the US Special Envoy for Climate Change, John Kerry, for saying technologies which don't yet exist will play a major role in stabilising the climate. Mr Kerry also said the US was leading the world in climate change and was rapidly phasing out coal-fired power stations. Dr Michael Mann is the director of the Earth System Science Centre at Pennsylvania State University. This is is a misguided statement, and I hope it's not the premise for the policy that they're going to be putting forward to uh, reduce our carbon emissions. The reality is that we have the technology now in the form of renewable energy. It simply needs to be scaled up. We simply need policies that will incentivize the shift that we need to see away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. And this idea that we have to rely on future tech to decarbonize our economy unfortunately plays into this notion that we can just kick the can down the road. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. COVID-19 updates today and we're talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Authorities are stepping up contact tracing in the hope of finding out how a four-year-old child was infected with COVID. He was confirmed to have the virus on Saturday, making him the first untraceable case in a week. All of the child's close contacts have been placed in quarantine in a hotel, including his schoolmates from a kindergarten who are accompanied by their families. And Hong Kong has tightened restrictions on travellers from Taiwan and is expected to subject arrivals from Japan and Singapore to the same tough measures. Officials said last week there is a high chance also that the launch of the travel bubble between Hong Kong and Singapore will be pushed back. And the Labour Department said it had performed spot checks on more than 3,500 domestic helpers uh, yesterday to see whether they'd complied with a compulsory testing order. The government had earlier ordered a second round of testing for helpers between May the 15th and the 30th. That doesn't apply to those who have been fully vaccinated. And the government's also announced more COVID tests on returnees put under quarantine. The test samples now have to be taken by nurses with experience in infection control. So... How are we doing in Hong Kong? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments. We have two experts with us. Uh, as before, if you want to talk directly to them, uh, best thing to do is to uh, give us a call, 233-88266, 233-88266. You can email bankchat at rthk.hk or you can comment on our Facebook page, put your thoughts there. That's Bankchat on RTHK Radio 3. And then after 9.15, as I say, we're going to be discussing the latest on the conflict between Israel and uh, Palestine. Joining us now... We have with us uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, Head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, and Dr. Sridhar Siddharth, who's a Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. Once again, our email is backchat.rthk.hk. Mike. Ben, these new facts are coming to us like machine gun fire. The four-year-old boy, the guy who flew in from Dubai just what's happened in in Taiwan and so on. But taking half a step back, big picture, where are we going with this in, in Hong Kong? What's the strategy? What's the end game? In the past year, we've done a good job in keeping COVID out of Hong Kong. We've had 11,000 cases. We can keep doing that for another year, another two years, another five years. But what we've seen in Taiwan and Singapore is that the virus can find its way back in. No matter how hard we try, it'll be back sooner or later. It'll flare up. So the long-term solution, the sustainable solution, is having a high vaccine coverage so that we're not worried anymore about COVID. It doesn't matter if it comes in or not because it's not going to pose a threat. And then we can all make our individual choices about 
whether we want to uh, wear masks, whether we want to uh, socially distance. It's up to us individually. That's what's happened in the US just recently. Uh, for now, we can't do that because COVID poses too much of a threat. But I hope that with the vaccine coverage coming up and up and up, particularly when we see the threat that COVID still poses in Singapore, Taiwan, elsewhere, that people will choose to go and get vaccinated, we'll see the coverage coming up, and then we can go really back to the pre-COVID normal. Are there any more sticks and carrots we can field here? I mean, other than, other than Matthew Chung putting something on his Facebook page, well, you know, what have we got? There, there must be. There must be more incentives to get vaccinated. I think I prefer the idea of carrots rather than sticks. I prefer the idea of encouraging people to choose to get vaccinated, but still being a voluntary choice. And then ultimately, like we've seen in the US, it will become an individual decision that once we get to a certain level of coverage, then we can open back up and it becomes an individual choice whether you want to get vaccinated or not, whether you want to wear masks or not, do with the other things or not. Right. right. You, I mean, the picture of Joe Biden walking alongside Kamala Harris, both of them maskless, was terrific. But I look at the Hong Kong situation, I think... I know I'm still going to be wearing mine in 2047. Yeah, I, I hope not. I hope that we'll, we'll see the vaccine coverage coming up and up and up. Um, I think the experience in Taiwan just now and also Singapore really reminds us that although we're safe today, the virus can be back any time. We've seen it come back a number of times, even in recent weeks. And so I, I think that the risk is still there. It still is uh, pretty immediate. Uh, I think in Taiwan, did I see somewhere that the vaccination rate is like 1%? Yeah, Taiwan have had trouble low. sourcing vaccines. So they oh, did okay. actually uh, make an order with Pfizer for a lot of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Um, and then Fosun... Uh, took over because Fosun was the, the first uh, mainland in investor. The mainland distributor was the first investor into BioNTech and they agreed with BioNTech that they'd be the distributor for China. And so they said that Taiwan was their territory and that the deal with Pfizer was cancelled. And then Taiwan have been trying to get vaccines from, from elsewhere, but they haven't had a lot of luck and they're having to wait, I think. And they've rejected a mainland offer of uh, some of their, their vaccine mm. on, on political grounds. I guess. I, guess. I, I mean, I was just kind of wondering, because they've had very low incidents. They? What's it like in New Zealand? I'm just wondering how strong a correlation there is. Yeah. Uh, the, if, you, if you have very low rate of infections, you have a very low rate of vaccinations. Because I think, I think in Europe, you've got, a, you've got a, a lot of the high rate of infections and a high rate of vaccinations. That's right. The issue in Taiwan would, would be partly supply. In Australia and New mm. Zealand, they also have limited supply so far. Uh, but they also have issues with hes hesitancy, like we do here in Hong Kong. And it's, it's, I think it's going to be similar in Singapore and in other parts of Asia where there has been less COVID around, and in the mainland, of course, where, where there's less perceived risk and so maybe more hesitancy because the risk isn't seen as immediate, whereas then you compare with the US and the UK, a lot of people have been desperate to get vaccinated because they know people that have had serious COVID, been in hospital, may even know people that have died from COVID. In Hong Kong, we, we don't. I, I don't think I know anyone that's died from COVID. Um, but in, in Europe and North America and South America, it's very, very real, very immediate. Yeah, the only person I know who died of COVID was an American in America. Right. Hmm. That's that. Dr. Sridhar, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Well, what's your take on on where we are? Yeah, I, I mean, I must say it's uh, it's an endless loop, isn't it? Like we managed to drive cases down to a certain level, and sooner or later cases flare back up. And the uh, situation in Hong Kong is being recapitulated in Singapore and Taiwan, and we're seeing a similar situation there. And as Professor Carling said, I mean, the only way out is to uh, is to you know achieve a high rate of vaccination. And uh, 
reduce uh, the SARS coronavirus to, to a normal kind of respiratory virus that uh, uh, circulates around the world. We're not going to get rid of the virus completely, but the important thing is to mitigate its impact on uh, you know our health and communities. And the best way to ensure that is to make sure as many people get vaccinated as possible. I, I am worried about Hong Kong's vaccination rate. And I think because we've been spared the worst of the pandemic here, compared to a lot of places in the world, uh, there is a degree of complacency in terms of, uh, you know, uh, underestimating the risk COVID-19 mm. uh, poses to us. So it is it is uh, sad to see, especially the RTHK report on the rate of vaccination among healthcare workers. That, that really uh, broke my heart. Was, was, it, uh, was it about 30% of healthcare, well, or people working in hospitals? Is that right? That's right. That's right. So that was uh, very uh, surprisingly low as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you work in hospitals, don't you? So what's, uh, why is that? What's your take on that? I actually, I do encounter a lot of uh, hesitancy among uh, healthcare workers, frontline doctors and nurses who are perhaps apprehensive about the uh, technology, apprehensive about variants. Uh, they feel there's a better option down the road. They are very wary about side effects, especially after one of the uh, healthcare workers who received it uh, died of a stroke. Um, so there is a lot of uh, hesitancy in, 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 in this uh, critical population as well. And that's important because a layperson would look at what a healthcare worker does, uh, right. and that would have a certain impact, wouldn't it? Like, even a doctor or nurse isn't getting it, then why should I get it? So yes. I, I think that is something that, uh, you know, organizations like the HA, the Hong Kong... Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned variants. You mentioned variants, and the problem is that the longer we stay at a low vaccination rate, the more scope there is for variants to develop. That's correct. I mean, uh, that applies all around the world. The more transmission you have, the more these variants are going to emerge over time. But the good news is at the moment, uh, the vaccines that we have on hand are uh, very effective at reducing severe and death due to variants. There's no doubt about it. And for many of the variants, uh, like, for example, the variant, they don't have much of an impact on vaccine efficacy at all, even against mm. symptomatic disease. So we still have, uh, you know, this window of opportunity to act, and I hope we you know, aggressively um, boost our vaccination rate soon. Okay, our number is 233 We've got a call on the line. Guy. Guy, good morning to you. Good morning, all. Um, I've got a question I'd like to put to Ben Cowling. Um, I have had both of my BioNTech shots I have had no side effects, not even the Mike Rouse constipation side effects. <laughs> I didn't uh, have it. I was it was reported oh, to me. No, I'm fine. <laughs> um, but I've got a question because I think I mentioned on an earlier call quite a long time ago that my wife was a refusenik. Uh, she's in her 70s um, and she has uh, type 2 diabetes. And I have not keeled over, and I'm now still faced with trying to persuade her to get her BioNTech shots. Is there any reason medically with um, type 2 diabetes that she should not get um, any of these vaccines? Dr. Siddharth? Yeah, um, basically no. As long as her diabetes is under control, she should get the vaccine. Because 
if anything, COVID-19 uh, causes more severe disease among uh, diabetic individuals. So definitely control get the vaccine as long as their diabetes are under control. Okay. Guy, has, has she been to her doctor or a doctor that she trusts? And, and yeah, she, she's regularly in the system with the Hong Kong government uh, following up on her diabetes. It's, uh, and what do they say? Has she said to the doctor, should well, I take I think, they, I think they say, yes, you should go ahead. But um, unfortunately, she's plugged into other sources of information. So I will, again, have a go at her regarding uh, what... Uh, advice is this morning. Well, best of luck with that, Guy, and if you can get it to work with your wife, give me some clues, <laughs> because my wife is a refuselic as well. For, for health oh. reasons, again, can I ask? Ah, uh, yes, she found a doctor to say it wouldn't be a good idea, but I have a feeling that's because how much she paid for the advice. <laughs> <laughs> Did she shop oh. around for different ones and then she found one that agreed I, with her? I wouldn't want to confirm yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Of course, uh, the other thing is it's, it's vastly discouraging to hear that so few uh, medical personnel have um, taken the vaccine themselves. Very discouraging to hear that, you know, only 10% of doctors and nurses in Hong Kong have uh, got the vaccine. Uh, 30, I think, was the 30, figure. About 30%, yeah. It's good that it's gone up, but you'd expect that it would be in the high 90s, quite honestly. Mm. Thank okay. you very much. Gary, th many, many thanks for your call. Good luck with that. Um, 233 uh, is our number. Okay, some uh, emails. All right, uh, here's Mike. All right, Mike says, uh, uh, yes, it's that Mike, says, you have two COVID experts that I really doubt have treated any or at best many COVID patients. Dr. Cowling is a number cruncher. Sorry for the criticism, but here are the facts. Half the people in the US are vaccinated and the other half don't want to join the experimental medical device. When do we stop calling it a vaccine? Uh, that's Mike's point. Dr. Sidoff, uh, is it fair to call it a vaccine? It's always going to be called a vaccine since it's something you get to prevent an infection. It is a vaccine and it'll, it'll always be a vaccine. I think it's about novelty in a way because um, this is something new, um, a new intervention, and people, uh, a certain proportion of the population will always be wary about those um, when it comes to, uh, you know, they might be apprehensive about the risks that it entails, whereas the risk may not be any greater than uh, activities that we perform on a daily basis, really. So it's just about normalization of this idea that COVID-19 vaccines are absolutely essential. Um, and this ha the sooner this normalization happens, the better. But at the moment, people are still like, oh, this is such a new thing and the risks are blown out of proportion and, uh, and, and the benefits are perhaps uh, a little too abstract for some. But Mike is correct in that in that this these vaccines have not been through the kind of uh, years of testing uh, uh, that uh, previous vaccines have been through. Is that correct? Well, the reality is that previous vaccines may have been through years of testing, but at least part of that is because of an inefficient testing process, right? Because it takes a lot of time to get from preclinical studies and animals to phase one to phase two, and that time is because of different reasons, you know, lack of funding or um, or bureaucratic inefficiency, etc. All that has changed this time because you have the best minds on the planet. You have all the money you can have, companies, governments, universities, pouring resources in, and this is the end result. You get an excellent product.
um, like the BioNTech vaccine coming out in record time with very little, sh- almost no shortcuts taken during the development process. The only thing about the vaccine that I have to concede is that we haven't followed up people over a long period of time. And that is absolutely understandable because this is a crisis. This is an international emergency. So you want to roll out vaccines as soon as possible. But our follow-up periods for, say, the BioNTech uh, phase three trial cohort is, uh, I mean, more than six months already, and nothing serious has come to light. When it comes to vaccines, most of your adverse effects are going to happen soon after the vaccine. I'm talking about a period of uh, four to six weeks or so, because this is when your immune response mounts responses to the vaccine. So you uh, have perhaps uh, the potential of observing some funny autoimmune phenomenon like we did with the AstraZeneca vaccine and the um, uh, blood clot issue. But uh, for example, the BioNTech issue, uh, uh, BioNTech vaccine and the coronavirus vaccine, no such issues have come to light several months after they launched their um, uh, vaccine on a massive international scale. So I'm very reassured as far as the safety is concerned. All right. Mike uh, says, change the definition of vaccine and call it a vaccine. Call it whatever you want, but be accurate, please. That comes uh, from Mike. We've got a caller on the line, James. James, good morning. Hi, good morning, Hugh. It's Jim Middleton from Julia. Hi, Jim. Hi. Um, look, this situation in Hong Kong, the, the Health Bureau, uh, for people who don't, who haven't checked, in Taiwan, including the, the recent spike, they now have just over 1,400 cases since the whole thing started. They've had 12 deaths and they have a 20, almost 25 million population. Hong Kong's got five, uh, 7.4, 7.5 population, million population, and they've had uh, 12,000 cases and 210 deaths. So they're making these knee-jerk, headless chicken reactions. Taiwan, oh, we've got to ban this, we've got to block that. It's never going to end. If, if, if They have no common sense, these people, or the, that person in charge, really. Like the same thing with, uh, you know, incarcerating a whole uh, building of vaccinated people and sending them off to get food poisoning. This has really got to stop. They have to use some common sense. They have to listen to the experts, not not the guys who want to keep us in lockdown until 2035 with their doom and gloom. But it's never going to go away. This thing is going to be like the annual flu. And to put things in perspective, as I said, we have we've we've got 210 deaths from from this um, uh, COVID so far. To put it in perspective, we have 7,000 deaths from smoking and smoking-related diseases every year. Why are they not exerting the same amount of uh, caution? It really needs to stop. And and for Republican Mike to call uh, an epidemiologist a number cruncher, it just shows the level of the Republican Party's uh, view on, on health. This is ridiculous. OK, Jim, many thanks for your call and your, your observations. 233-88266 is our number. Some uh, more thoughts uh, from listeners. Uh uh, Mark says the Hong Kong government's leading health spokesman, Sophia Chan, said 
quote, the basis for returning to life to normal is vaccination, unquote, while imposing a two-week quarantine on, vaccinate, on vaccinated returnees from Taiwan. How does this encourage people to vaccinate? when obviously they don't trust vaccinations. And he says, further to my message, my wife was fully vaccinated in Hong Kong. Biontech went to Taiwan four days ago to visit family. She must now go into a two-week hotel quarantine upon return to Hong Kong. This doesn't make sense and must be counterproductive in the vaccination drive. That comes from Mark. Ben Cowling, how would you make that um, estimation? Yeah, I, I've said before, I think I've said on this show as well, that I think vaccinated people should be exempt from the on-arrival quarantine. Now, having said that, there is a small risk because we know that in other countries we've heard about vaccinated people may still get infected. In Singapore, there's a number of cases of that happening. But the trade-off there's a trade-off. So if you, if you relax a policy for vaccinated people, that's an incentive to get vaccinated. And as a consequence of that, you're going to get a much higher vaccine coverage. So although you, you have a slightly increased risk because of relaxing the policy on vaccinated individuals, that's f more than offset. It's offset even more. by so, so you're much safer as a result of the higher vaccine uptake that will be a result of that. So I think it's something that we should do. But what I've heard against it is just the argument on one side that it's too risky, that, that there'll be an increased risk as a consequence of a relaxation. What I haven't heard is the, the offset, that if you can get a much higher vaccine coverage, then it doesn't matter because we're safe anyway with a higher vaccine coverage. OK. Um, uh, Elango says, good morning, Backchat. Question to both my favourite doctors. Uh, I should say, uh, uh, Professor Cowling is a PhD, but not, not a medical doctor. Uh, anyway, uh, Alango says, My wife has received her first dose of BioNTech three weeks ago, and her second dose is due today. But we discovered yesterday that she's pregnant. Surprise, surprise. I understand from the CHP and CDC that BioNTech is safe for pregnant women, but I can't find any recommendation for our situation, especially in first trimester. Can you please clarify? That comes from Alango. Dr. Siddharth, do you know anything about that? Well, the, the state of knowledge on this is that it is uh, the BioNTech vaccine is probably safe in pregnancy. So they have had large uh, observational studies uh, overseas where they follow a pregnant that will receive the vaccine, and there doesn't seem to be an increased risk of uh, pregnancy-related side effects. Um, a personal feeling on this is that uh, if if you receive the vaccine and perhaps have a rather severe reaction, say you have a little bit of a fever or a little bit of uh, you know generalized flu-like illness, uh, such an incident in early pregnancy may perhaps slightly increase the risk of uh, miscarriage. Um, but of course, whether whether or not this applies to the setting of biontech vaccination is still uncertain. So if you're in super early pregnancy, right, so if you're just found out... Uh, if it's first trimester, uh, yeah. First trimester, it might make some sense to defer vaccination a little bit um, to okay. perhaps the second trimester or so. We know for sure that delaying the second dose is not going to have a major impact on how effective the vaccine is. It certainly works up to six weeks, and there's no data saying that if you push the second dose uh, a little bit further, like uh, some countries are doing, like the UK is doing, the immune responses are just as robust, if not uh, even better. So, um, yeah, perhaps consider pushing it down the line uh, past the, you know, the, the, the rather critical first trimester. But I must qualify that by saying that this is what I just said is not entirely evidence-based. We're not uh, entirely sure about, um, you know, safety during different trimesters of pregnancy. But uh, overall, uh, it appears to be safe in the pregnancy setting. So 
you can definitely still go ahead. It's just a matter of timing and uh, discussion okay. with your obstetrician. All right. Thank you very much indeed for that. All right. Alango has a, has a follow-up question that perhaps Professor Cowling could address. Uh, uh, he says, uh, I read a thread in Twitter from a Hong Konger about the vaccine hesitancy. He explained about the local people's weighted out attitude that they can survive with low COVID risk with masks and social distancing until the majority of the world gets vaccinated and the virus disappears. I'm baffled by this view. What's your take on this? We will never return to normality, uh, in my opinion. I don't think the virus is going to disappear. If it will ever disappear, it won't be in the next five or 10 years. It will be in a longer term. So I, I think it is a possibility for Hong Kong to stay in the status quo, to stay with the mass, the intermittent social distancing, the quarantines, and then we'll be okay with or without a high vaccine coverage in the status quo. But that's got a lot of economic implications, which I don't think the community would really be that keen on. It's a much better, in my opinion, it's a much better solution for Hong Kong to get the high vaccine coverage and then just go back to normal. And then we don't need to fear COVID anymore. Right, we'd be safe, but we'd all be unemployed. But, but other <laughs> diseases have sort of... Uh, exhausted themselves, haven't they? It tends to happen. Uh, not really. I, the, the, the example I would, the example I would, I would put it next to is something like pandemic flu in H one N one in two thousand nine, where it, it became a, a seasonal flu in the following years. Maybe it posed the biggest threat in that first year, and COVID poses the biggest threat now for for the last twelve months, maybe the next twelve or twenty four months, uh, in places that are still trying to get their vaccine coverage up. But in the longer term, it's going to be a seasonal infection causing generally mild illness, um, but still maybe. Uh, like flu, killing some people every year, but not something that will shut countries down for. But SARS disappeared, didn't it? We got Just... rid of SARS. So SARS in 2003, we actively eliminated it through human effort. It didn't naturally disappear. Actually, if we hadn't done what we did with the isolation of cases, the quarantine, the, uh, all the public health measures as right. well, if we hadn't done that, it would have it would have stayed. Of course, SARS killed its hosts very quickly. It was easier to deal with SARS actually because it was more severe. It is, it's kind of ironic that because SARS was such a serious infection, we could pick up who had it and who, who didn't, um, isolate the cases, quarantine the contacts, effective infection control in hospitals. And that was, that was enough to get rid of it. For COVID, because so many infections are mild, it's difficult. It's really difficult to track everyone down. Okay, we'll continue after the news uh, at nine. Jeff says, here's a carrot. How about a cruise to nowhere for local Hong Kong residents who have been fully vaccinated, says Jeff. Who has an interest in that as well? Uh, the weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Very hot during the day. Temperatures up to 33 degrees. Uh, today, there's a very hot weather warning. Now 30 Celsius with a relative humidity of 75%. Need to go in immediately. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat this Monday morning with Mike Rouse and uh, me, Hugh Chilton. We're talking once again about uh, aspects of uh, COVID-19, uh, especially in Hong Kong. Later after 9.15, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict and how that's uh, flaring up, how it might be uh, addressed. Uh, if you've got any comments, please share them by emailing bankchat at rthk.hk or by calling us on 233-88266 or by leaving a message on our Facebook page. That's Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3, which is where TC says on 13th of May, the US Centers for Disease Control announced that fully vaccinated people no longer need to wear a mask, except for some places such as public transportation and senior homes or social distance. While based on some science, on studies that prove vaccines work, it's more of a political decision, as the US is still ways away from herd immunity. This is probably an effort from the US government in encouraging to get vaccinated, especially Americans who hate wearing masks. In my opinion, the US or 
state governments need to work out the details on one's proof of full vaccination. New York State's Excelsior Pass, its version of Leave Home Safe, may be the solution to that. Now the Hong Kong government should learn something from this. The US government is providing a significant non-monetary incentive for getting vaccinated, and the Hong Kong government is punishing people for not doing something. But I think the most important difference between the two is that the US government have much more confidence in its vaccines than that of Hong Kong. That's uh, from uh, TC. Um, uh, let's see, quite a few uh, different uh, uh, emails on aspects of it. Anthony, we've got a lot of Anthony's now, so I'm going to have to uh, call you Anthony T. Anthony T says, uh, what measures that the Hong Kong government has done uh, leading to the declining COVID infections as compared with the rising infections in Taiwan? Is that related to the surprise lockdown, mandatory COVID tests and much higher vaccination rate? Well, what lessons can the Taiwan government learn from the Chinese Communist Party if they want to contain the spread of COVID? That's from uh, Anthony T. Uh, LP says, why can't the government consider a more incentive-based quarantine for those who have been fully vaccinated? I'm sure that if they offered two weeks or even ten days at home with a series of tests, instead of two or three weeks in a hotel, which costs so much money, they would see a massive increase in voluntary vaccinations. Right now, the way that they are treating fully vaccinated people still with such caution... Uh, that they are not showing the public they have enough faith. How do they expect people to go for vaccinations when they're giving such mixed messages by keeping the quarantine for fully vaccinated people? Still so impossible for most of the population. And two, I was sent this message this morning. This is from a doctor on the front line in the US. Quote, I consulted on a patient 35 years with no medical issues until he caught COVID 10 weeks ago. He's been ventilated for two months and now has cholestasis of sepsis and may lose his liver. In his chart, it's written 35-year-old ventilator-dependent male who declined vaccination uh, in February. Uh, that's from uh, LP. Thanks for that. Uh, Bob says, uh, it's all very well for Mike Rouse to bang on about what more the government should be doing, but where are the private sector in all this? Missing in action, as far as I can see. Dedicating themselves to issuing statements, asking for more money, less restrictions. Hong Kong is, or used to be, a city recognised for its entrepreneurial spirit, awash with promotional campaigns. Yet today, we have nothing. Look at the US. Uber and Lyft will provide free transport for people going to get vaccinated through July the 4th. Krispy Kreme is hanging out free donuts to vaccinated people. One state has set up a lottery. That's real spirit. The non-government sector could and should do so much more to encourage vaccination. But will they? That comes uh, from uh, Bob. Uh, e says Hong Kong is going to be stuck in pandemic purgatory for a long time. With a high level of vaccination, we could achieve herd immunity, return to a normal life and drop our inbound travel quarantines. However, this will mean that the virus will be present in the community. This kind of normal is unfortunately at odds with the government's goal of staying at zero cases so that quarantine-free travel within friction-free mainland can resume. If resuming travel with the mainland is the primary goal, then it follows that we cannot resume travel with the rest of the world until the mainland also achieves herd immunity. How long will that take? That comes uh, from uh, E. We're joined uh, by Professor Benjamin Cowling from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong and Dr Sridhar Siddharth, uh, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, and have we got a caller? 
on the line? No. Okay, one more comment. This is from Simon, uh, who says, uh, on uh, vaccine safety, no basis to say that they're safe in the long term. Returning to that theme, Simon says, can you please ask your experts, how long has mRNA vaccines been in use? Prior to COVID-19, how extensively had mRNA vaccines been used around the world? In view of the short timescale since vaccines have been available, six months or less, it's impossible for any experts to say what, if any, side effects will develop in the future. The extended timescale for previous vaccines development has allowed long-term impacts to be observed. The issues which occurred with swine flu vaccines causing narcolepsy in children is an example of what can go wrong. And there's a link below. Uh... Uh, so far, no children have been delivered by parents who were vaccinated prior to conception. Myself and wife have both been vaccinated beyond tech, but I won't be vaccinating my very my young girls for some time to come. That comes uh, from uh, Simon. D- D- Dr. Siddharth, what about that uh, mRNA vaccine? A new technology, it's often described as, uh, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, question, there's question marks over it. Uh, is there something to be concerned about when it comes to mRNA technology? It's actually not that new. It's, uh, the technology has been around for quite a few years now. Uh, and actually, there have been a lot of early phase clinical trials in humans using mRNA vaccines for a variety of infectious diseases like uh, rabies and uh, uh, cytomegalovirus, etc. So there is a, there are a list of clinical trials. Now, these early phase clinical trials typically involve a few, um, uh, about 100 participants. Um, who receive the vaccine and then they just look at antibody responses and things like that. So it's a small number of people who have received such mRNA vaccines down the years since 2013, if I recall correctly. And uh, there has never been a report of um, any significant long-term side effects occurring due to these vaccines. Um, and many of these companies that develop these vaccines are still around, right? They have, like companies like CureVac, etc. So... Essentially, it's not ultra new. It's not something that people just came up with once COVID-19 emerged in the world. So it's been around for a while, and it's been very successfully leveraged um, to this new challenge. And given the fact that the vaccine mRNA is extremely fragile, and the protein that it produces is also very transiently expressed in the body, the vaccine basically feeds away. So the thought that it's going to persist in the body in some way, mess around with our DNA or affect our reproductive capacity has no basis in, uh, in, in, in science, really. Okay. Um, so on the question of the uh, second dose when uh, pregnant, Alango uh, uh, says, thanks for the answer, doctor. My wife had no side effects. It did nothing for her from her first dose. So shall we take it forward with the second dose? We don't want any risk from COVID during pregnancy. So I think the, 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 your point was that you should maybe delay it a little bit till later in the pregnancy, away from the first trimester? Yeah. yeah. I remember the second dose tends to uh, be a little bit more severe in terms of side effects. So it's difficult to predict the side effects from the second dose from how bad the first dose was. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if, if you feel like you're up for it and you feel like it's, uh, it's, it's going to be okay, I, I don't have a firm reason to say you definitely can't get it in the first trimester. Um, so, uh, if you're confident in it, you can still go ahead. But if you want to delay it a little bit, uh, you know, beyond the first trimester, that is also okay, okay from an efficacy point of view. 
Okay. Uh, Nick says, uh, good morning. Professor Cowling mentioned in an earlier program that checking antibodies was becoming a quicker process. Would it be practical for such checks to be carried out on arrivals into Hong Kong and when a building is being locked down? Those with sufficient antibodies could then be allowed to avoid quarantine. What would be the risk? The uptake on vaccines would then go up dramatically. That's from Nick. Yeah, good question. So there's two different ways, maybe. One of the ways is to get the blood sample, send it to the public health laboratory in Kowloon and wait for them maybe a day or two to get the result done and the result sent back. There's another choice, which is a rapid test that, that in some countries you can buy over the counter. It's like a finger prick. You put the, the finger prick of blood onto the test kit and it tells you within maybe 15 minutes uh, about whether you've got antibodies. That one is going to be less sensitive. But in a sense, if we want to screen out the people or identify the people that have higher levels of antibodies, then that would be fine. And I'd support using a point of care test in a situation like the, the, the buildings. Although, actually, I would say for the building lockdowns, that may not be justified anyway. But maybe in another sense, people who are being sent to the close quarantine camps, if the, when the staff come, they do the fingerprint test and it's positive for antibodies, then, then maybe you don't need to go. Uh, and the advantage of that actually is, is we'll be talking about saying vaccinated people maybe don't need to go to quarantine, don't need to comply with other things. If you have an antibody test, you don't need to verify the vaccine status of so someone who's come into Hong Kong from somewhere else in the world uh, who says they've been vaccinated. At the minute, we can't really verify that. In the US, they just have a bit of paper that says on it, I've been vaccinated vaccinated signed by a doctor if you can check the antibodies then that's your objective proof that someone's got the antibodies and you don't need to worry about verifying the vaccination status because you say you know if you've got antibodies then then you don't need to quarantine if you don't have antibodies then then may maybe you still do okay a couple more comments uh, mike says i stand corrected epidemiologists often called disease detectives epidemiologists search for the cause of disease identify people who are at risk determine how to control or stop the spread or prevent it from happening again but he happens to crunch numbers a lot too that comes from Mike. Uh, uh, Matt says, thank you to the experts for coming on the show again. Indeed, thank you very much indeed once again. Uh, Matt says, I would appreciate their view on the following. Limited data indicates that people who have reduced immunity, for example, cancer patients, have variable response to the COVID vaccine and in general the response less than in healthy people. Should the government offer tests to assess the antibody response in these patients? Otherwise, these patients may be falsely reassured after vaccination and lower their guard with increased risk of infection. They are more at risk of serious illness once infected too. A test would remove any uncertainty about whether they have developed immunity. It comes from Matt. I, I don't think the government will do that, but that certainly should be an option uh, in private providers, maybe in diagnostic laboratories. And of course, remember that people in that situation wouldn't only be, be concerned about the risk of COVID, they'd be concerned about the risk of other respiratory infections or other infections in general. And so those people may be would choose to wear a mask on public transport to protect themselves and do other things, not only because of COVID, but because of their lower immunity in general. OK, uh, now here's an email from uh, Paul. I should say, of course, we are reading out these messages which come from listeners and they may contain uh, inaccuracies. All right. But then we have these experts here who can who can correct the uh, inaccuracies or misconceptions or whatever. Paul says, what a honey badger of a virus this COVID-19 is, eh? Uh, first, we were advised to wear masks to stop the virus entering into our faces. Next, we were told that not wearing a mask was killing granny. Then we were told to stay apart from each other, told not to make bodily contact, stop from taking barbecues in the open area. 
open air. Kids were all stopped from going to school. Air travel is almost out of the question. And now we have vaccines that don't seem to vaccinate properly. And despite being denied by the doctors, Backchat have on, these vaccines contain mRNA, which has a direct effect on DNA, which is what our genes are made from. All this because about 130, mostly over 80 people, have died. I can't help note that social control is the governing factor here and not public health. That comes from uh, Paul. Right, in Hong Kong, that's right, we've had 210 deaths, I think, so far. But the reason we've had those and, and not many more is because of the effective control measures in the last year, the, the masks, the social distancing, the quarantines. If we hadn't done all of those things, it would have been a much larger death toll. It would have been thousands, possibly even tens of thousands. And we can see the situation in Brazil, in India recently is horrific with hospitals running out of beds, running out of oxygen. Uh, in Hong Kong, we've done a really good job, but that doesn't mean that COVID isn't a threat. It, it just means we, we've done well in, in minimising the impact so far. And until we get a high vaccine coverage, we're going to have to keep those measures in place. Otherwise, we'll lose all the ground that we've, we've gained in the past year. What about okay. the thing about sorry, sorry, mRNA sorry, sorry, attacking I, DNA? Yeah, yeah. That's that, very important. Anyone? Yeah, that MRI doesn't attack DNA. It, it's, it's just a, a very short-term, uh, you could call it an instruction manual for your, your cells, not the nucleus of your cells, but, but parts of your cells to create uh, part of the virus so that your body can learn to defend itself against the virus if it meets it in the wild. And the virus, the mRNA dissolves uh, very quickly. It doesn't stay in the body. It doesn't permanently change your, your DNA in any way. It's just a temporary instruction manual manual once your body's made the stuff it dissolves it's gone uh that the viral proteins have gone as well and your immunity remains so that if you face covid in the future you'll, you'll be protected okay and uh, just a, a round of uh, emails to uh, finish off well, okay here's a quick specific question for dr siddharth from ali who says we're in phase three trials they're not complete uh, until 2023 all past coronavirus studies on animals ended in the animals dying when they came into contact with the wild virus comes from Ali. Any comment on that? So we have done animal studies on mRNA vaccines using monkeys. Um, in fact, our protection from COVID-19, so the extent of disease was much, much lower in vaccinated monkeys compared to unvaccinated ones. And this is, uh, we already knew by the middle of 2020. And as far as, as, far as the phase three clinical trial, it is correct that they should have a long follow-up period so they end um, uh, day down the line because you need to follow up these people. I'm sure everyone wants to know what happens to the initial cohort of people who are vaccinated in the phase three clinical trial. But as I said, so far, you know, we have data for up to six months from Pfizer BioNTech, and the results have been very reassuring, very excellent in terms of both efficacy and safety. And it's correct that the trial should go on to continue monitoring these individuals over time. Okay, Ali also says, why are other treatments such as ivermectin? Uh, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, vitamin C, vit zinc, etc., not being discussed as well as vaccines. These experimental medical procedures known as vaccines have not been proven to reduce symptoms or stop people getting sick or dying, while there have been thousands of deaths and serious adverse effects. Also, we're in phase three of studies which are not being widely discussed by the medical experts. Surely we should be using some of these other treatments rather than just pushing the vaccines that are not so deadly. That uh, is uh, from Ali. Uh, who also says, what cycle threshold has the PCR test been currently set to uh, in, in Hong Kong? Uh, James called again and said the government should offer a $1,000 incentive to people. With these incentives, people will take uh, the vaccinations. Uh, uh, Johnny says, based on listener Mike's comments, I presume he hasn't been vaccinated. Am I correct in saying he's a dentist? If so, is he still practising? Uh, and... Uh, 
Uh, Ali also says, if, as Ben Cowling says, many people have mild symptoms, why the draconian measures? Is this based on asymptomatic transfer? Uh, this has never been proven, and in fact, studies have been done to refute this. Shouldn't we protect the most vulnerable by encouraging everyone to be as healthy as possible through natural methods, rather than encouraging a deadly, unproven medical procedure? Don't you think that the stress that is putting us on right now is encouraging illness of all sorts? That comes from Ali. Professor Cowling, do you want to address that finally? I, I think we're, we're going to learn that vaccines have saved millions of lives in 2021 i think that the vaccines that the high coverage in in europe in the us already in israel has undoubtedly saved a lot of lives and it's going to save a lot more in the coming years and allow countries to return to normal in hong kong we're still going to be in the status quo for a while longer until we can get the vaccine coverage up so it, it's true that there are side effects from vaccination but at the same time there's enormous consequences of of staying in the status quo um there's the economic harm there's the social harm there's the harm to public health of of, poor, of lower incomes, unemployment and other, other things that are, uh, I'm worried about in the coming year. And so vaccination is our way out of this. Uh, okay. Vaccination is the way back to normal. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us once again. Professor Benjamin Cowling from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. And Dr. Sridhar Siddharth is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, a says, uh, regarding upping the vaccine level, but how about uh, anyone who's vaccinated gets paid $5,000, like a second round of the $10,000 paid last year, but linked to the vaccine. As the vaccine is approved for 12 to 15 in USA and Canada, approve it here for the same age group. Anyone who's had the vaccine does not have to quarantine in a hotel when arriving back to the city. Anyone with the vaccine does not have to go to Penny's Bay, those uh, suggestions. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you very much indeed for uh, all the uh, comments. Uh, just uh, before we get to our, our second uh, topic today, our main topic on, on uh, Israel and Palestine uh, conflict, uh, some comments uh, on other uh, uh, issues and other programmes. Chris says that noisy DAB woman always points fingers to protesters, yelling that they brought violence to demonstrations. She must be selectively blind and didn't see Popo disguising radical protesters and threw petrol bombs to public facilities. Who created violence at the root? That's from uh, Chris. Uh, and uh, uh, let's see. Um, Anthony, a lot of Anthony's, as I say. Anthony W says, uh, Dear Bakshan, I write as the owner and business manager of an unlicensed massage establishment, which in my case is part of a hair salon and beauty parlour. Virtually all small mass private massage establishments in Hong Kong are unlicensed the exception being massage rooms set in well-established operations such as major hotels. The reason for this is that only these well-funded organisations can afford to wait out the nine months it takes to obtain a licence while holding open the fully equipped premises for inspection. Therefore, all these businesses take advantage of the exemptions provided in the guidelines for applying for a licence issued by the police department. The most noteworthy exemption... An exemption is that the massage can be given to a person of the opposite sex, provided there is no full body massage. There are a host of other exemptions which offer flexibility. Therefore, the SEMP article was a storm in a teacup unless the establishment was a cover for a brothel, which would be another matter. But the whole saga does bear the question as to why Hong Kong has such a poorly conceived massage licence process in the first place. That's from uh, Anthony W. We wanted to turn finally today, as mentioned, to the uh, conflict between um, Israel and uh, Palestine. 
the UN Security Council has held an emergency meeting with international medias hoping to broker a ceasefire, although the Secretary-General described the uh, violence as utterly appalling and said the fighting must stop uh, immediately. Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, has said that uh, the military operations against uh, Palestinian Hamas militants in Gaza will continue with full force. For comments, uh, we're joined now by uh, Shakram Akhrabazadeh, who's a research professor of Middle uh, East and Central Asian politics at Deakin University uh, in Australia. Uh, professor Akhrabazadeh, good morning to you. Good day to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Um, is this going to play out probably that it will continue until, Netanyahu, until the pressure grows on Netanyahu and it kind of stops and then it's just pausing for a little while? How do you see this playing out? Well, thanks for having me. Unfortunately, this is a very uh, um, familiar pattern. Mm. Um, Israel has been uh, engaging in um, conflict with the Palestinian uh, Palestinian people, specifically the Hamas organization. And um, the level of international response has not been enough to really put pressure on Netanyahu and the Israeli government to stop. Netanyahu obviously has his own uh, imperatives. Uh, He is in uh, a bit of a political strife in Israel at the moment. Um, he needs to shore up support uh, for his leadership. And uh, it's a very easy thing to do for uh, leaders uh, in strife. Uh, point to an external enemy, uh, present themselves as champions of the nation, and uh, defenders of the nation, and uh, that always uh, brings in political uh, legitimacy. So. Uh, What's going on at the moment is that the international community has been um, hamstrung by the U.S. decision to uh, really hold it back. Um, The U.N. had a discussion um, yesterday uh, at the Security Council, and the United States uh, effectively stopped the U.N. security uh, issuing a statement on a ceasefire. Good uh, good morning. This is really going to... Sure. Hi, good morning. Uh, this is Mike Rouse. I was reading in The Economist that one of the possible triggers for this was the uh, eviction orders being uh, processed in respect of property in East Jerusalem, where if your family held that land back in 1947-48 um, and it's now occupied by someone else, you can apply to get that land back. What what can you tell us about that trigger? Well, Israel has been uh, implementing a policy of uh, relocating uh, population in the occupied territories. East Jerusalem is part of the occupied territories that Israel controls uh, since 1967 war. And... um, as a result, Israel basically has, and it has, Israel has been doing this in the West Bank too, has been establishing settlements in order to uh, make the future of a Palestinian state impossible. You can have a Palestinian state when the territory you control is checkered with settlements and the roads that cross those settlements which are not open to Palestinian use. It makes a mockery of the whole idea of having an independent state. In East Jerusalem, yes, they have been been, um, um, evicting Palestinian families 
and allowing Israeli families to settle in. And this is going to really change the demographic makeup of East Jerusalem, uh, taking away its Palestinian characteristics and making it more of a Jewish characteristic, which really speaks to a very uh, established agenda of, um, again, depriving the future Palestinian state of having Jerusalem as its capital. Right, because this seems to be a law allowing this. We're talking about the Supreme Court was considering petitions to achieve this to legitimize the evictions. Yes, yes, that, that, uh, that is a long-standing policy of uh, evicting uh, Palestinians from their homes and uh, allowing Jewish family, Israeli families to uh, occupy those. Again, this, this does change the demographic of uh, the territory, it changes the landscape, and then it becomes a fait accompli that uh, Jerusalem, or East Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the, future, the capital future Palestinian state, is no longer a Palestinian city, but a Jewish city. All right. So that's an inch-by-inch inch, uh, destruction of the idea of uh, two states? Uh, more than more than inch. <laughs> yes, definitely, yes. And is it correct, and I, I'm re really, I just don't know, this is not a loaded question. Is it correct that there is no equivalent legislation uh, for Arabs to reclaim their land in, for example, West Jerusalem? Uh, no, there is not. There is not. There is nothing comparable. No. No. And, uh, and, and you know, um, there have been uh, Palestinian families um, who uh, were, uh, who had, gone to exile following 67 war, um, who had lived in um, West Jerusalem, now, now uh, which is a Jewish um, city now, and uh, they still have their certificates and their paperwork, and of course they cannot return. So that has been, again, a long-standing demand of the Palestinian uh, refugees, the right to return to their home, which um, is not going to happen. I'm sure there's another side of the story but do, do, do you think that they i mean do you, do you see the un as being permanently hamstrung by by uh, america's stance on this or do you think that there's any scope for the for uh, the un to to uh, bring something uh, like a ceasefire in the situation uh, well, this the situation the deadlock in the un security council is um is a very much permanent feature of uh, of the United Nations. The U.S. has been behaving. The U.S. has never allowed the United Nations to issue a resolution against Israel. That has been a constant policy. So I don't see that changing anytime soon, despite uh, the growing international demand and growing international outreach uh, at the way that Israel has been behaving. You know, Israel keeps talking about uh, uh, the right to defend itself. Israel constantly talks about, uh, the Israeli government talks about um, Israel has a right to exist, has a right to defend itself, um, and that just, that just imposes a uh, false narrative 
on this whole situation because it's not a question of Israel defending itself. It's a question of Israel being an occupying power in Palestine, uh, controlling occupied territories and changing the demographic makeup of those occupied territories against international law. There are laws uh, about occupation. Uh, occupying powers need to leave, uh, but before they leave, and while they're still in occupation, they are not allowed to change the uh, population makeup of but, their control. But, but firing ro- ro- rockets from Gaza is not going to achieve that. That's not going to change minds in Israel, and bombing by Israel uh, in Gaza is not going to change minds in Gaza. It's, that's the reality, isn't it? There's only, there's only, uh, it only hardens opinion on both sides. Unfortunately, we have reached a very uh, critical and difficult point in the history where no one's going to change their minds, and that's the reality of it. That's why we need to have international intervention and forceful international intervention. That's why the United Nations role is so critical, uh, because that's the only international body that has some level of legitimacy in the eyes of uh, both sides. Mm. Um, and that's why when the United States effectively uh, undermines UN ability to act as an independent arbiter, an independent peacemaker, then it is um, really stoking the, um, the fire of conflict. Okay, some, just some comment, quick comments from listeners. Vic says, uh, I can't help wondering why, how the world watches quietly and the US, the torchbearer for human rights, passively encourages Israel's atrocities on the Palestinians. The only excuse of Benjamin is that a five-year-old by saying they started it. Even in Myanmar, the world is doing nothing. What a shamefully neutered UN and spineless world leaders we have. That comes uh, from uh, Vic. Anthony T says, why democratic nations such as Britain, America and Israel are always that belligerent? Why these democracies are so keen on attacking other nations and killing the innocents, yet Hong Kong people rarely condemn such brutal acts? Uh, And Andrew Kay says, another biased guest from an Australian university. You really must do better. That comes uh, from uh, Andrew Kay. Thank you very much indeed for that. And thank you very much indeed to uh, our guest, uh, uh, Shakram Akhrabazadeh, who's a research professor of Middle East and Central Asian politics at Deakin University, uh, indeed in Australia. Thank you very much indeed for that. One more comment from Jeff, who says, uh, who called earlier about uh, sending people on on a cruise or offering a cruise. He says, sorry to clarify, I did not intend to suggest the government pay for cruises to nowhere, only that cruise to nowhere be allowed to restart for people who have been fully vaccinated that's uh, uh from jeff thank you very much indeed uh for that uh, comment thank you very much indeed to uh, all the emails sorry we weren't able to get to all of them the best suggestion i saw for the private sector helping out was offering free beer if you were vaccinated. <laughs> you have an interest in, in that, though. Uh, the weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Very hot during the day. There's a very hot weather warning now. 31 Celsius, relative humidity at 76%. Statutory maternity leave has been increased from 10 weeks to 14 weeks. Employers may apply for reimbursement of the additional four weeks maternity leave pay after paying employees. The reimbursement of maternity leave pay scheme is now open for applications. Employers are welcome to make online applications on the Reimbursement Easy Portal at rmlps.gov.hk. For details, visit the website or call 2636-6353. 9.34, the news now with Samantha Butler. 
The government has imposed restrictions on Taiwan arrivals after the island recorded 206 new COVID-19 cases yesterday. Over the weekend, authorities in Taiwan raised the COVID alert level for Taipei and nearby New Taipei. RTHK's correspondent there, Cindy Su, said health experts